Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Right now, Merrick Garland, a former chief judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, is going through confirmation hearings as President Biden's pick for attorney general. Judge Garland, who was poised to become the government's chief law enforcement officer, oversaw the investigation of the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. In a recent Washington Post article, written by Matt Zapatowski and Ann Marimau, titled, quote, How the Oklahoma City Bombing Case Prepared Merrick Garland to Take on Domestic Terrorism, close quote, they wrote that Garland urged caution in presenting the massive amount of evidence from the wreckage and told the lead prosecutor on the case, quote, do not bury the crime with the clutter. Now, for the overseer of of an investigation to characterize evidence as clutter is, I think, any investigator would agree, extraordinary. Garland, the article says, just wanted to, quote, speed the trial along. My guest today is a first-hand source who can talk about what he knows about the bombing and what he personally experienced, which raised serious questions about Garland's hurry to wrap up the case and send Timothy McVeigh to the slammer. My guest today is a CIA whistleblower. His name is Cody Snodgrass. He was recruited out of the CIA straight out of high school because of his extraordinary aptitudes in math and physics, as well as his physical prowess. He was involved in a number of CIA operations, including Iran-Contra and other operations you've never heard of, like Project Slammer. He has survived several assassination attempts for putting out what he knows about the bombing, which is why you won't be seeing his face or mine today because we're just audio recording. Given who the nation's next attorney general will most likely be, I thought Mr. Snodgrass's story has just taken on a new urgency. Welcome, Cody. Well, Christine, it's really a pleasure, and uh, well, thank you for all the work you're doing. And we'll try to do our best. We're here, uh, uh, traveled yesterday. We ha- we have no notes or anything, but we'll we'll do the best that we can here. Well, why don't we start off with your experience with this? How how did you? How, what happened to you? How did you get involved in this? In in uh, Oklahoma City. Yeah. What happened to you with the Oklahoma City uh, case? Yeah, um, and um, I had been doing black ops for a long time, and towards the end of it, I had been severely injured uh, on several occasions. I had nerve damage and broken bones and a bunch of stuff, and I had got PTSD real bad, and I started drinking uh, to cover my PTSD. And um, later on, uh, towards the end of my career, in October of 1994, another CIA operative named Harold Leonard offered me the job. He called me. Uh, we went to a remote mountain location, and um, you know he was always worried about his lips being read by satellites and stuff. I mean, that's how paranoid this guy was. He had worked in China and uh, Southeast Asia and uh, a number of uh, other covert assignments, but he called me and we met. It was October 94, 
and he had a backpack with half a million dollars in cash in it. And he said, we've got a job for you. And I said, uh, what country were you going to? I figured we were going back to the Middle East. And he said, no, this one's a domestic one. And I said, what is it? And uh, he said, we want you to bomb a building. Um, this is long before anyone ever heard of McVeigh, Timothy McVeigh or anything. And I said, well, which building is it? And he goes, it's a federal building. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, it's uh, a federal building. And I said, wait a minute, you want me to bomb a building? He said, yeah, you got half a million now and then half a million when the job's done. You can pick your team, all the standard EOD stuff you need, EOD, explosives, demolitions. Um, and I said, wait a minute, which building is it? And he said, it's the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building. And I was towards the end of my career. Uh, I, I was been injured. I was having bad dreams every night from all the dirty stuff we did. You know, we were the guys wearing the black ski mask and, and Nomex gloves and double surgeon's gloves. And, you know, we were the guys in the black ops ghost world that did all the dirty stuff. And um, I couldn't take it anymore. And I told him, I said, no. I said, you guys have went too far this time. I mean, I can understand going overseas and doing uh, this kind of work, but I'm not going to do it against our own people. I said, you guys have lost your – I'm trying not to cuss on the air here, but I said, you guys <laughs> yeah. have lost your minds. And uh, he told me to calm down, and uh, he offered me another job that had to do with uh, another drug cartel thing here in the United States. But um, that was my first offer for that. And I turned it down on, on patriotic ground. I didn't care about the money. I got money. I don't need it. But um, well, I didn't did know you, when did the Murrow building was actually going to go off. Did it and when I turned that down, two days later, my handler – now, I can use this guy's name. His name is Duke Flaglier because he's dead. He was a special forces guy from Vietnam, did a couple of tours over there, and then he got back and worked for the agency. He was stationed mostly in Europe. But um, he called me. Uh, two days after that, and he got wind of it, and he said, you need to get out of the country. And I said, why? And he said, because you've changed from an asset to a liability. And um, he had a place in Belize, and he said, uh, come by and pick the keys up. He was in Atlanta, Georgia at the time, and then he said, we'll stage you out of there. And what that means is they create a legend for you. They give you a fake ID, a new identity. They create all the papers, everything you need, and they move you to a foreign country, and you live out your life. And... Um, I told him, no, I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to say anything. Um, I'm just going to keep quiet because we did a number of jobs besides this murder building thing. And um, so, what? what in the United States? Yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, let's keep talking about Murrah Building, but let's circle back after that. I'd like to know what other jobs were done in the uh, Well, some of this stuff I can talk about, and some of it can't, I can't. i got to quote the, um, the IIPA. That's the Intelligence Identities Protection Act. And um, you, you, some people may know a guy named John Kiriakou, CIA case officer. Um, yep. He had to do prison time because he inadvertently let out an active CIA name. Um, it's against the law to do that. So the people I talk about are ones that are dead. Uh, I'm not going to talk about people who still are alive or have family or some of these other ops. Uh, but the Murrah building op, I can talk about some of the, the stuff. And like Duke, he, he's dead, so I can use his name. But um, other people are still alive that were involved in that, and I'm not going to talk about that. But um, okay. the point is, 
when you you go through this whole thing later on in April the 19th of 1995, the Murrah building went off. And we had a number of safe houses down in the Oklahoma and Arkansas area because I had worked previously there uh, in the CIA ops down there with Bill and Hillary Clinton, you know, Centaur Rose, Jade Bridge, and Screwworm. I talk about it in my book. My book is Choosing the Light, Dark Secrets of the Oklahoma City Bombing, and 700 pages, and it's got a lot of this detail in it. But anyway, um, we had safe houses down there. And so I knew, since I had been offered the job, that I'd be a target. So I went black. And uh, we had fake identities, you know, it's tradecraft. We had, I had disguises and wig kits and, you know, drop cars and all the stuff. Well, I went to some of our old safe houses from the Centaur Rose days. That's back in 82 through uh, 85. Um, and, and we've done a number of interviews about all that. But that, that had to do with Barry Seal and the Contras and all that stuff. I was right in the middle of all that. But anyway, um, we were black operatives, covert operatives. And so I went down to the safe houses and that's when they uh, had picked McVeigh up, and um, they started all the newscasts. You know, morning news and night, Christina. You know, Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh. And they put it out in the news before he was ever even arraigned by the grand jury. And so we knew a cover-up. He was the patsy. And that's what I expect, I figured out, you know, when they first offered me the job. It's a patsy job. Um because I've been in the business a long time, and a million dollars was a paltry payment for some type of op like that. I'd never taken a job like that for, for that amount of money. But anyway, um, I left the country for a little while and let it all boil down. And they, they took McVeigh and put him up in the 10th Circuit Court, um, and then they tried him, convicted him, and sent him away to Terre Haute, Indiana, to the new death chamber there, and they executed him. And it was a patchy job the whole way. Um, and later I would discover the real reasons why I was offered that job and why they bombed the Murrah building in the first place. And we can talk about some of that yeah, here so people can that. understand the depth of why the U.S. government would bomb their own building. And then yeah. lay it off on Apache. It's just like killing Kennedy. Why would they do that, their own president, and then lay it off on Apache? Well, there's some real deep stuff behind it. This is not conspiracy theory. And in my book, I have a lot of anecdotal and circumstantial evidence. We have 302 FBI reports, ATF reports, and so forth. But here's what happened to me. After I got back in the U.S., um, I was letting things die down. And McVeigh had been executed, and Terry Nichols had been sent here in Colorado to a foreign supermax facility. He got life life sentence, all that. Um, I knew, you know, the whole thing was a patchy deal. And so that was in 95 when that building went up. I, reti I had retired in March of 1995, okay, one month before the Murray building went up. See, in October of 94, when they offered me the million dollars, I didn't know when they were going to do an op. I didn't know what they were going to do. I just turned it down. And then I retired in March, and then a month later, uh, the building went up. So I left the country, came back, and um, after that, I was silent for a number of years. 
And then in 1997, the ATF and the DEA began a joint operation out of Colorado Springs, Colorado. It was called Operation Stingray. And in that operation, um, I ran across a guy named Blake Butler. He was an ATF agent, and he was undercover at the time, and we didn't know it. And so right after the Columbine High School shootings, I was talking with Blake Butler, and we were alone in a house on Oswego Street in Colorado Springs. I got all the details in my book. And this was actually an undercover residence, and across the street, unbeknownst to me, was a surveillance house with the uh, DEA and the FBI. So they had two houses, and they had them wired with cameras, uh, hidden cameras and microphones and everything. And so we were sitting there talking, and at the Columbine High School shooting, uh, that was the biggest shooting, Christina, in the U.S. at the time, biggest high school shooting. They had Bill Clinton and the Attorney General of the United States, Janet Reno. They they had come into town to capitalize politically on the uh, on the carnage there at Columbine. Anyway, uh, I started talking to Blake Butler in there, and uh, I normally you know don't do it, but I started talking about Bill Clinton and the operations that we did back in Arkansas. And he goes, "You used to work for the CIA," and I go, oh, "Yeah." Uh, I, you know, and I told him all about Centaur Rose and the ops, and then I mentioned the Murrow Building and how they offered me the job to blow it up. Well, at this time, Christina, I didn't know we were under hidden cameras. They had four millimeter hidden cameras. So when the ATF recorded all that, I told them the whole story about the Murrow Building and Harold Leonard and the money uh, and all that. Well, the ATF contacted CIA, and CIA took the took the tapes and they disappeared them and then they ordered ATF to plant me with fake evidence so Blake Butler who was later to be given the nation's top cop award by Vice President Al Gore and Attorney General Janet Reno at a Washington DC dinner party I have a picture of him in the book I have a lot of pictures and and documents in the in the book big appendix but um Anyway, so he planted me with fake evidence. Then they used the fake evidence, and they what went to the, the grand jury. The this, is where, this is where the story gets good. Wait, but what okay. was the fake evidence? Okay, the fake evidence were um, uh, it was a star aug machine gun. See, at the time, Christina, I was the biggest Class Three dealer here in Colorado. Class Three is an NFA license. That's a National Firearms Act license. And it allows you to deal machine guns, silencers, uh, sawed-off shotguns, uh, and stuff like that. We had Class One, Class Two, and Class Three licenses. We could manufacture machine guns. We could build silencers and sell them. Uh, we did a business across the states. Now that was a front for more CI stuff I was doing, okay, in Colorado Springs. But um, what he did was he planted me with a fake machine gun. You know, he he. Um, I can go through the whole thing. It's all in my book. I don't know how much time do we have here. We have it. We have an hour, but go ahead and and um, never mind that. Just go ahead and do your story. To okay. So so anyway, they planted me with fake evidence, and he kept 
trying to get me to convert a semi-automatic gun over to a machine gun by installing trigger packs. And I said, no, I have a license. You have to get a, uh, a tax stamp from the ATF to do that. And I said real loud to him, no, that's a felony. I won't do it. You know, and so what the ATF did was they converted a semi-automatic gun to a machine gun and then charged me with it. Then they went back to the tapes and they cut that part out of the tapes where I said that, no, that's a felony. I won't do it. So they went, put me in the Tenth Circuit, and my judge was a guy named Judge Edward Nottingham. And I found out later that Judge Edward Nottingham had been nominated to his federal judgeship by none other than George Bush Sr. The prosecutor on my case was Tom Strickland. He was appointed directly by Bill Clinton. And when Clinton first got presidency, he fired every U.S. attorney in the whole country and then put his own guys in there, and Tom Strickland was one of them. Why did he do that? He did that to cover up all the blowback that could have happened from the operations in Arkansas. Wow, okay. Now, in Arkansas, they had the big Mena airport thing, Iran-Contra. They were taking uh, weapons down from the U.S. to supply the the uh, uh, Contras. And then the Sandinistas run by Daniel Ortega. I know people had dinner with him and he's in his uh, place, and um, we were in the arms part of that, bringing the arms down there, and then they brought cocaine back. They flew it in a C-123. I mean, this is so big. In an hour's time, it's difficult. Uh, I I understand. But you're asking me all these questions. Okay, why, why did Bill Clinton fire all the U.S. attorneys? They had been running major CI operations domestically, illegally, down there in Arkansas. A lot of this stuff's already been out on the Internet. We've done dozens of interviews about it, and we can go into depth in it anytime you want. But um, Was if any we take of time to do that, to I'm not going to be able to bombing? finish the story. Was it, so was that, Clinton what? got president, and he wanted to cover up what he was doing. That's why they... They stacked the deck in the Justice Department to cover up the blowback okay. from all those operations down there. Okay, and we can we can talk about that, but it's going to take a whole show just no, to let's focus do, on let's, what let's they did keep, down there in Arkansas. Hillary Clinton, the Rose Law firm, the whole thing. Let's and he made Hubble Oklahoma. his attorney general at first, and Hubble got indicted in the state of Arkansas with a felony thing, and he had to quit, so Janet Reno was moved up from Florida. Now, one of my other associates I worked with in the Defense Intelligence Agency named Captain Glenn Wilson, I can use his name because uh, he's dead now of Agent Orange, but um, he was no-knock narcotics down in uh, Dade County in Florida when Janet Reno was the uh, uh, AG down there before Clinton moved her up there. And okay, Cody, I let's have a just whole bunch of stories OKC. in my book about Janet Reno and the corruption with the cocaine and all the cartel stuff that went down there. My girlfriend had dinner with Pablo Escobar and all this kind of stuff. It's a it's a big long story, okay? Yeah, let's just let's so, focus on Oklahoma. Okay. I, I just thought maybe uh, you that you asked me why Clinton No, why no, no. I know. I thought I thought it was connected. I can talk and tell you that for 2 hours. I thought it was connected to OKC, but obviously... It is. Um, it's definitely uh, connected to OKC, because all the law enforcement records down there, what the Clintons did, 
had been moved to the the Murrah City, the Murrah bombing building, uh, just weeks before it went up. And I can tell you the reasons why that building was bombed. Okay, but I got to finish this story. Okay, go ahead. Tell me why. Tell me why. I'm, I'm getting lost. I don't understand your question. No, no, just no. You said I can tell you the reasons why the building was bombed, and I. Okay, I, so I you want me to quit with what I was saying? Yeah, right. yeah. Let's. We're jumping around through decades of time, and no, we can't do it in an hour. I know. So let's just focus on Oklahoma. So, so explain, explain to the audience why why they blew up the the building. Okay. To do so, we have to go back to the Iraq War. You know, Timothy McVeigh was a soldier. He was a tank commander, and he won a Bronze Star for confirmed kills over there. Terry Nichols was also in his uh, in his commander, and so they were related from the war over there. But you know, Iran and Iraq had fought a long war, Christina, through the early '80s. And Donald Rumsfeld had went over there, Secretary of Defense, and we were giving him satellite intel and everything else. And so um, we had covertly armed Saddam Hussein. The Iran-Contra affair, which I was right in the middle of all that, too, we were arming both Iran and also Iraq covertly. Okay, and they were lying to the American people. One of the things we armed Saddam Hussein with, he was our ally. Saddam Hussein worked for the CIA. He was an asset. And um, so we were helping him, and Iran had a 10-to-1 infantry advantage over Iraq. And so we were worried that our ally was going to get overrun. So we secretly armed him with the AIM strain of anthrax. That's from Fort Detrick, Maryland. It's a weaponized anthrax that uh, has a smaller size and an altered protein coat to make it more virulent and more effective for human targets. And that was going to be a last-ditch effort. If the Iranians overran uh, Saddam, then uh, they were going to use some of that anthrax and stuff. So he never used it. And the I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff. I had friends in the Office of Naval Intelligence, Christina, that was in Tehran in the embassy you know, when the Ayatollah Khomeini's forces took over uh, and and took our CI station chief and tortured him to death and all that. I mean, uh, we're going to skip all this stuff and just get back to the Iran war because we got to get to the Oklahoma City bombing, the reasons why it was bombed. So we'll go through brief history here. So Saddam uh, had this anthrax. Then he invaded Kuwait later after the Iran war was over. And he rolled several tank divisions right through Kuwait and poised them on the Saudi border. And the Saudis got very nervous. So they put pressure on our administration over here, and we cooked up the Desert Storm. We had to get, get over there and take care of our former ally. Saddam Hussein worked for the CIA. He was a former ally, but now he went rogue. So now they had to demonize him. And the Saudis were worried about the world uh, oil prices if Saddam had invaded uh, Saudi Arabia. So anyway, we cooked up Desert Storm, to make a long story short. And in January of 91, our troops went over there, approximately 480,000 of them. Well, we had a problem. The AIM Strange Anthrax, which Saddam Hussein had, 
and the American people didn't know we'd, we'd armed him with that. We armed him with Hawkeye 123 cluster bomb copies, too, that they made out of a front company in Argentina. I have all the stories, all the stuff, the data in my book. But anyway, Saddam, Saddam uh, had to be put back in his place, and we had to get our troops over there real quick. So they worried that he would use that anthrax on us, on our troops. So our standard uh, anthrax vaccines, Christina, took six months, one injection per month to build immunity. And they couldn't wait six months. They didn't have the time. So they cooked up a new anthrax vaccine. It was uh, just like this COVID vaccine. They cooked it up. They bypassed human uh, trials and testing, and they used a new adjunct called squalene. An adjunct is something that boosts autoimmune response in the human body so that the virus can seed adhesion, uh, the attenuated virus, and then your, your body can make the antibodies and, and stop it. And so they came up with this new vaccine. A lot of it was made by Bioport. And I have all the data and the lot numbers. The first ones were sent out to Dover Air Force Base. They had a lot of autoimmune problems, uh, made people uh, shaky, uh, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, headaches, nausea, all kinds of stuff. And um, they later called all this stuff the Gulf War Syndrome. That was another cover-up. But we're getting to the Murrah building. So um, we gave our troops these, these bogus vaccines basically use them like guinea pigs with this brand-new squalene adjunct. And they sent them over there. Well, then when they were over there, Christine, they used a new form of weaponry called depleted uranium. And it was used in two primary weapons configurations. One was the M1A1 Abrams tank, like Timothy McVeigh was driving, and also the A-10 Warthogs. I know some pilots that were over there and, and stuff, but they use a 30-millimeter chain gun, uranium-238. And what happened, Christine, was that, Christina, was that um, when they used this new weapon, they deployed approximately 200 or so tons of it. Um, there was a new problem that occurred. The Pentagon had never used this stuff, just like they did Agent Orange in Vietnam. And this stuff poisoned our troops. The fireballs that were created, this high-level kinetic energy, enough to take a T-72 tank. That was Saddam's predominant weapons configuration in their tanks. Uh, they weigh about 11 tons, the, the turrets, and it would blow them up like tumbleweeds. And so high kinetic energy made a big fireball, and in the fireball, Christina, was new, new elements were being formed, a uranium oxide and uranium dioxide. Okay, what does all this have to do with the Murrow building while well, we're getting there? Our troops were breathing this stuff, and the mop gear that we had, that's the gear, you know, nuclear, biological, chemical gear with the filters and the gas mask, they filtered particles only down to 10 microns, Christina. And these new elements, uranium oxide, uranium dioxide, was approximately 4 microns. So what was happening? Our troops were breathing this poison. It's low-level radiation. Okay? So what happened? Years went by. Our troops came home. They started having failure to thrive syndrome. There was a lot of problems, medical problems. They covered it all up, rolled it up all under this Gulf War syndrome umbrella. But when the troops came home, Christina, they made, you know, they made love to their wives and stuff. And what was happening was this low-level radiation poison concentrates in two places in the human body, in your thyroids 
and in your reproductive glands. And so what was happening, never happened before, was that this radiation was being transmitted to their spouses through their semen, and then from the spouses into the children. And from those children, it's, uranium has a half-life of millions of years, into the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren, and all of a sudden the Pentagon had this huge problem of multi-generational radiation poisoning from these brand-new depleted uranium weapons. How were they going to deal with it? You're talking hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars in long-term medical costs. They did not know how far down the, the generational tree this radiation poisoning would be transmitted. So they covered it up. And here's how they covered it up. Senator Christopher Shea, Republican on the Armed Services Committee in Congress, had been tasked with uh, solving this problem, getting our Gulf War Syndrome soldiers medical culpability payments for the damages they had sustained, just like the Vietnam guys, our veterans had to get compensation for the Agent Orange from DuPont Chemical they sprayed because it has long-term effects. It doesn't show up for 10, 20, 30 years. And so what happened was Senator Christopher Shea, this is where it gets important to the Murrah building, they ordered the FBI to go around and collect the service records of approximately 480,000 of our Gulf War veteran troops. And they gave them a year to do it because these people have been spread out. Some of them are still in the military. Some of them went off to civilian life. They had to get all these huge amounts of medical records, and they were determine medical culpability and give our guys uh, and girls some money uh, based on these medical records. Well, guess where all these medical records were stored, Christina? At the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. And when that building blew up, all those medical records were lost. And later on in 1996, at the, they were still continued the Gulf War hearings, um, the DOD admitted that they had lost over 400,000 of our troops' medical records. And I have the actual copy from the DOD hearing in the appendix of the book. But what you're looking at here for the Murrah Building one of the reasons it was destroyed was to hide the cover-up of the Gulf War and the, the, the medical culpability payments, which could have ran into the trillions of dollars intergenerationally. Great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids. They didn't know how far this was going to go, so they just erased it all. Okay, there's two other reasons why that building was bombed, and I don't think we're going to have time to get into them, but one of them deals with Bill and Hillary Clinton and all of the records that were stored in the FBI field offices in Little Rock, Arkansas, because the Centaur Rose op that I was in down there, that was a CI op. We can, I could talk about I know all kinds of stuff about it, but we don't have time here. But to make a long story short, the ABI, the Arkansas Bureau of Investigation, and the DEA and the IRS had started investigations there. They were washing about $100 million a month in cocaine money from Central America and then taking the arms down there. And so 
we can talk about all that later. But they had to cover all that up. And there had been investigations going on against Bill and Hillary Clinton and the CIA and everything. And all those records were moved to the Murrah building, Christina, just weeks before it blew up. So there's two reasons. One is to cover up the squalene adjuncts, the anthrax shots, the illegal vaccines, the Gulf War sickness, the depleted uranium, and get the Pentagon off the hook for trillions of dollars of money. Plus, Bill and Hillary Clinton got off the hook when their records, because you got to remember, Bill Clinton was getting impeached, and at the impeachment hearings, they were going to subpoena a bunch of those records. So that's another reason. There's a third reason that has to do with the Waco, uh, what happened in Waco, Texas. Now, in my book, I tell the story. I knew some of those branch civilians. I'm not a branch civilian, but I knew some of them that were there that were uh, very good friends with David Koresh. And I got the inside story of what really happened at Waco. And that was another massive cover-up. So we had three cover-ups going on. All the stuff that happened at the, what really happened at Waco, they covered all that up, and the records, a lot of those were put in the Murrah building. Then they had the Arkansas uh, records with Bill and Hillary Clinton they had to cover up, and then they had the Gulf War records they had to cover up. And so all this came together in fruition at 9.02, I think it was, Central Time, on April the 19th, 1995, when the Murrah building was detonated. And the whole thing with Timothy McVeigh was a total patsy. The Ryder truck story was just the cover. There were really three bombs inside that building, three separate bombs. Um, and, and we can talk about all that. I mean, this, my book is 700 pages long, and it took me four and a half years to write, and it has a lot of detail, eyewitnesses, all kinds of things. So um, I hope I'm not rambling, but I'm trying to no, cover. No, how did they get those bombs in there? Who, who took the bomb, brought the bombs in? Well, I don't know that. I don't know who brought the bombs in, but what they did was they wired them up, uh, you know, beforehand. There were reports in the um, from several people, and I have their names in the book, but there were people that worked at the Murrah building, and they saw crews that they thought were phone crews. You know, several guys dressed up with you know, southwestern bell hats and phone trucks and everything. And then there were plumbing crews. And then the daycare center was under construction at the time. And so construction crews and phone crews, uh, you know, plumber crews, those are great ways to go into a building and plant explosives when you're going to detonate it at some uh, future date. And so we have all that stuff in the book, uh, names, dates, times, all kinds of stuff. We've got... After I wrote the book, Christine, I got dozens and dozens of letters. I got four great big boxes of, of mail, uh, and people, I got a lot of correspondence from Oklahoma, and they said, I was a paramedic, or I was a firefighter, I was a first responder, and, you know, I've been afraid all this time to talk. But now that your book came out, I want to tell you what I saw that day. And, they, and you know, then they say, don't use my name if you're going to write a second book, you know, because they're afraid. They've got family relatives and so forth but the the point to all this is just in this brief hour here that we're talking uh, i can go into much more detail about all this stuff but the the point is is that there was a massive cover-up and that that building was detonated for a variety of reasons mainly the destruction of records and so um we 
we can go into all kinds of details about how Let they covered stuff something. up. Let me you ask know, you The Oklahoma City um, Police Department there, Christina, had been involved. Some of them, not all of them. There's a lot of good cops there. But some of them were involved in, in drug rings. And the FBI had uh, infiltrated them. And they had the evidence that the Oklahoma City Police Department was involved in covering up their officers' drug dealing. So they used that to blackmail them to help them cover up the murder building when it went up. And so we have the names of some of the agents, the regional area commanders, uh, the SACs, they call them, um, and, and stuff like that. So it's an amazing story with a lot of details that have been hidden from the American people. And the censorship in the media and, and all the lies that have been told are absolutely astounding. Now, after I talked to Agent Butler, okay, way back in uh, 97, 98, that was during Operation uh, Stingray, ATFDEA Operation Stingray. They planted me with fake evidence. They put me in front of a judge, uh, Nottingham, who was controlled by the CIA. I found out all the stuff that goes on in the Tenth Circuit Court, how they use the Promise software, which is a software package designed by the DOJ to steer cases. And what we found in the Tenth Circuit was anyone who had a CIA case like mine, or Joe Naccio, the NSA guy for QWest, there were several others in there, they, the CIA can steer cases to their judges. These are CIA-controlled judges posing as regular judges inside the Justice Department. Nobody knows who they are until you trip across them like I did in my case. And then so they can control the court cases. That's why they they sent Tim McVeigh up there to the Tenth Circuit, so they could control the case, make sure none of this other evidence got in there. All that was allowed was the lone bomber thing, and then they executed him in record time. And it was a way to hush him up. And I talked to some of the people that were inside the Bureau of Prisons there at Inglewood uh, um, in Denver, Colorado. That's a... FCI facility, Federal Correctional Institute, and um, they told me that the the only ones who could talk to Timothy McVeigh while he was there at his trial um, had to be uh, lieutenant grade or higher. You have to have 15 years in the BOP, uh, and uh, they wouldn't let the regular guards even talk to Timothy McVeigh. The prison guards were forbidden to talk to Timothy McVeigh. This is how scared the government was of the truth coming out. And then they executed him in record time. And that's another way you kill the patsy, just like Lee Harvey Oswald down in Dallas. Jack Ruby shoots him, and then Ruby dies of cancer. Case closed. It gives closure to the American people. But it does also close up the truth. And it closes all the truth up about our suffering veterans and the Gulf War syndrome, and the squalene adjuncts, and the vaccines, and the depleted uranium, and all of the cocaine that was moved in in Arkansas, uh, and all the covert arming that was going on down there too. And so we can talk more about this all in detail. You know, I'm just trying to give an overview of a very big subject that went over through decades of time. And I'm trying to do it all in like an hour with no notes. Let me let me ask you something. Um, I'm I'm sure they didn't take too kindly to your coming forward uh, to talk about the fact that you were offered a million dollars to uh, uh, blow up the building. Did were there any repercussions for you? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And what happened was they planted me with false evidence. Uh, they threw me in uh, Supermax. The judge said I was too dangerous to be in with the regular prison population. Christina, they put me in there. I had no traffic tickets, no arrests, no criminal. I had a perfect, absolutely perfect record. And they put me off the street into Supermax in solitary because they didn't want me talking to anyone. And um, I went four and a half years and never even had a motions hearing. And so they called my attorney, Harvey Steinberg. He was a Denver Broncos football team attorney at the time uh, one day, and they had a sealed hearing. And I asked him, you know, who was in the hearing? And he said, man, I've never seen stuff like this. He said, I've been an attorney a long time. But he said this was really high-level stuff. They kicked all the U.S. Marshals and the court transcriber out of the court. And they had the uh, United States Assistant Attorney, a guy named Guy Till, and then Harvey Steinberg and Judge Edward Nottingham, nominated, of course, by George Bush Sr. And then they had two suits in there. And I said, who were the suits? He said they were unidentified, but they were CIA. I know they were. And they pulled those tapes out that they made during Operation Stingray. Well, I talked about the Murrah billing, and I talked about Bill Clinton, and I talked about all this stuff. They hid the tapes. They disappeared them out of my discovery. They vanished. They played them to the judge. And and so I finally got out of all that. And then later on, Judge Edward Nottingham himself, Christina, had to resign in a sex scandal with prostitutes. He was with the Denver Players owner, Brenda Stewart, and um, – they had caught him on his credit cards, paying for prostitutes, and he was using his DOJ computers back behind his judge chambers and, and having sexual content, you know, <laughs> yeah. sent in there. And so the judge was corrupt, direct ties to the CIA. Tom Strickland was corrupt, direct ties to Bill Clinton and the CIA. Um, the whole thing was CIA. Uh, Tom Strickland, the U.S. attorney that Bill Clinton put in there, guess what, Christina? He worked in Denver for a law firm called Hyatt, Faber, Brownstein, and Strickland. And Norman Brownstein was the principal. He was the one that was the big head dog of this law firm. Guess who he used to work for, Christina? He was on the council of six in the CIA. It's a council of attorneys whenever there's blowback from some of the black ops that goes on and it makes the paper, somebody talks, whistleblower says something, whatever happens, their job is to cover it all up legally and absolve the CIA of any uh, uh, you know, ramifications. And so the, the law firm of, of the 10th Circuit United States attorney, that was CIA. The whole thing is CIA. That's why they sent Tom, uh, Tim McVeigh up there, where they could control the evidence, and the American now, people now were not allowed out. to see any of this stuff about the Gulf War and about the anthrax vaccines and hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of medical expenses that they didn't have to pay, and all of this stuff. And so in my book, we have it all detailed and outlined, and we can talk more about it. Uh, you know, well, but they, they really Butler hammered show me. Up again? Didn't and then when I, I waited 22 years, Christina, to tell this story. Okay, I waited 22 years. I had the book all written, and then I finally went out and broke it out in the media. And the reason they said, why did you wait so long? I said, I had to wait till Bill and Hillary Clinton were out of power. 
and Hillary Clinton had been uh, appointed uh, Secretary of State in the Obama administration. And so I kept my mouth shut. Anytime the Clintons have a high-level power thing, they always use it to shut up their – to shut the truth up. And Bill Clinton used it. They did IRS investigations on all uh, all the people like Monica Lewinsky. And let me, um, let me ask you something. I, I want to get back. Have you ever heard of something called PatCon or Patriot what? Conspiracy? What? Have you ever heard of something called an FBI initiative called PatCon or Patriot no. Con- Conspiracy? No. Okay, you know who Jesse Trentadu is. He's his yeah. brother. Was, could could you talk a little bit, bit about that? Because you know Pat Con apparently was a long term provocation campaign uh, run by the FBI, where they wanted to quote infiltrate and incite the militia and evangelical Christians to violence, so that right. the DOJ could crush them. And right. Jesse. Yeah. Yeah. They do a lot of that kind of stuff, agent provocateurs and everything. But in my book, we have tremendous detail. I mean, like I said, if you want to do more interviews later when we got more time, I can I can get into drill down, you know, into certain things. But Jesse Trinidad is an attorney, Marine Corps guy, um, attorney in Salt Lake City, and his brother uh, had been picked up right after. The Murrah building blew up on April 1995 before Timothy McVeigh was indicted. Okay? You go back to that time. Here's this building that blew up. All heck was breaking loose. So the FBI rounded up some material witnesses, and one of them was Jesse Trinidad's brother. Okay? Some of them were tied in with that guy named uh, Andreas Straussmeyer. Uh, he was a German intelligence guy who had come over, and they had uh, the Elohim compound there in Oklahoma City with the white supremacists and the you know the the militia type guys like you're talking about. And McVeigh had been over there just to uh, and and hung out with him for a while. And this Trinidad guy had seen him, and so they picked him up and two other guys, and they were going to hold him for material witnesses just overnight, so they could. Wheel them into the grand jury the next morning, and they were getting evidence in front of the grand jury so they could indict somebody for the Oklahoma City bombing because Tim McVeigh had not been indicted yet. Right. But in all the civilian press, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Chickasha, uh, Oklahoma, Muskogee, all those little towns, all of them, Christina, were saying, Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh, before he'd ever been indicted. So Jesse Trinidad's brother was fixing to go testify. Then they were going to release him after his testimony the next day. Well, guess what happened, Christina? Not one, not two, but all three of the material witnesses who were going to testify to the grand jury in Oklahoma City all hung themselves in their cells at the Oklahoma City transfer station, even though they were going to be released the next day. So Jesse Trinidad didn't buy the story. And he said, I want to see my brother's body. I don't believe your autopsy, that he hung himself. So they said, no, he's a Bureau of Prison. He was under Bureau of Prison's custody. He's a federal prisoner. And you can't have the body. So they got in a court case. And they fought and fought, and finally they got his body. And the Trinidad's took... Uh, 
He, you know, Jesse took his brother in front of three different forensic pathologists, and they got three separate private pathology reports of the cause of death. And he had been beaten. He had broken stuff. He'd been tortured. They said it. All, all three of them said he'd been tortured, Christina. So what it was, the FBI was finding out stuff they wanted to know from him. And then they killed him so he couldn't testify to the grand jury because it, all their testimony would not fit this lone bomber rider truck thing that the FBI was pushing. Okay? It was all a lie. And they had to shut the witnesses up. So, make a long story short, uh, Jesse Trinidad, uh he filed another lawsuit. And he got a big settlement, multi-million dollar settlement for wrongful death on his brother. Then he used that money to get the tapes. And around the Murrah building, when it blew up that morning, April 19th, 95, there were uh, 12 surveillance cameras around Northwest 5th Street there in Oklahoma City. The OG&E, that's Oklahoma Gas and Electric Building, the First National Bank Building, all these different buildings had their own security cameras. So if you want to see what happened at the Murr Building that morning when it blew up, of course you'd want to get the videos, right? Well, guess what? The FBI went in and confiscated all 12, all the cameras around the whole area, just like what they did with the Pentagon strike in, in 9-11. They, yep. they confiscated all the cameras and sealed them under national security. And, well, Trinidad said, I need to see them. I want to I know what's going on. I smell a rotten fish. My brother was killed to shut something up, and he won a lawsuit about it, and he used the money to fight them. And so, make a long story short, the FBI said, no, we're not going to give you these tapes because there's a criminal prosecution. And so after McVeigh was executed at Terre Haute, Indiana, finally he kept filing appeal, 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 and a judge said, all right, you got to turn the tapes over. And all 12 surveillance tapes were finally turned over to Jesse Trinidad. And guess what happened, Christina? Guess what happened? What? When they went to look on those 12 separate surveillance tapes at, at 9 o'clock – on April 19th, Central Time, 1995, every single tape went blank. Because the Murrah building blew up, I think it was 9.02 or 9.03 a.m. Central Time that day. Then they came back online at 9.05. Why so every single today? tape, after they got them back from the FBI, was all blacked out. You know why? Because they didn't want people... Like me, who's I'm an explosives expert, you know, and you look at them forensically and you can tell what type of explosives, what the color of the smoke is, what the flame looks like, what the shockwave patterns are like, and you can tell what was used and all that. And it was not a rider truck with ammonium nitrate and diesel. That was all a lie. Okay. Um, so anyway, uh, well, Trinado, uh got in a lot of trouble for what he was doing. They had death threats, all kinds of stuff, and I have a section in my book about that. But his brother was killed, and it's a real sad story. But when you start looking through this whole thing, Christina, many witnesses, dozens and dozens of witnesses were murdered to shut up the truth about the Murrah building. And dozens and dozens of people were murdered by Bill and Hillary Clinton uh, or their operatives in Arkansas to cover up the vast uh, drug and arms operations. And then a lot of well, the troops died in Iraq because of the uh, 
uh, bogus anthrax vaccines and the Gulf War uranium stuff. So um, this information comes at a high cost. And uh, after I waited 22 years, um, they planted me with fake evidence and threw me in prison for something I didn't do. I pled guilty to something uh, that I didn't do to get them off my back because we had waited four and a half years to get evidence in the court. And I'd hired a guy named William Valentine, who was a tape expert. He had coffee. He worked for the CIA as an electronics expert. He had coffee with three sitting presidents, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. His job was to bug, debug the White House. And he took my case. And he said, we've got 100% proof that they've tampered with the evidence. Uh, he said, you're going to take down the whole ATF and DEA offices there in Colorado. Uh, this is going to be national news. It'll be on the front page of every newspaper all over the, the CBS and everything else. And he said they're going to do anything to keep you from getting your evidence in the court. You've got them on conspiracy uh, to obstruct justice, uh, all kinds of things, planning evidence, falsifying tapes, you name it, uh, mass corruption. And uh, he said they're not going to let you do it. And so we had two weeks uh, Judge Nottingham told us, you, you have to get this in the court. It's been four and a half years, and we've got to have a motions hearing. And two weeks before that, Christina, um, I got hit in a major car accident and almost killed. Uh, it was real bad. I can, uh, the whole story is in the book. I don't have time now to go into it. But anyway, make a long story short, they almost killed me in this car. I got out of the hospital. I was going to physical therapy, and I came out. And uh, there was a police car sitting there, and it jumped the curb, came at me with a motor floored, and swerved at the last minute. And in the car was ATF agent Blake Butler, dressed up like a Colorado Springs police officer, and he shook his finger at me. All right, I left there. I stopped and threw up on the way because I was in bad shape. And I got home. And when I got home, I have a cabin way out in the mountains. My wife and the two-year-old son were there. And I was sitting there, and Harold Leonard pulls up, the, the CIA guy that offered me the job to bomb the Murrah building. And I walked out to the front yard, and I was hoping they'd just kill me because I knew they'd leave, my, they'd leave my family alone. So I walked up to Harold, and he had the motor running, and he said, look, we've got orders. If you go into court and you expose all this corruption and stuff and you talk about the Murrah building or any of the other CIA ops we did, We've got orders to kill you. And then he pointed up to my house, and he said, we've got orders to kill you and your uh, family. And then he sighed, and he looked down, because he's my friend. I mean, we were op buddies. And he looked at me and said, it's nothing personal. And he drove off. And I was standing there hoping a sniper or somebody just kill me. And so I went back in. I called my attorney, Harvey Steinberg, the Denver Broncos attorney, I said, I need to make an, I want to change my plea. I'm going to plead guilty. Uh, and we went up there the next day, and uh, I pled guilty to a charge. They said, pick a charge, any charge. I don't care what it is. Just plead guilty, and you're out of here. It was U.S. Attorney uh, Greg Goldberg who the case had been shifted to after four and a half years. He said, I've heard about this. I don't even want to know what's going on. I'm getting a lot of heat on this. Everybody wants this to just go away. So I pointed to something. It was dealing firearms without a license. Ridiculous. Um, 
And I just I pointed to it upside down. I didn't even know what I was pleading guilty to, and I didn't care as long as they leave my family alone. And so I pled guilty to that. I did my time. I got out. I did all my stuff. Um, and in years, I waited and waited and waited to tell the story. So you and know, I collected I, data. I collected 302 evidence. I've got 20,000 pages of discovery evidence. Me and Army Ranger guys snuck up and did surveillance, counter-surveillance of the DEA, ATF, and CIA surveillance. They watched my house for five years straight, 24-hour-a-day surveillance, seven days a week for five five years straight. They spent $10.5 million. They had aerial surveillance. They bugged our cars. They bugged our house. Uh, everything. Everything you can imagine. And so I collected all this data, and I kept my mouth shut, Christine. And I, I, I got my book together. I got it all together. And I thought one day I'm going to let it out. So when Hillary Clinton did not make president against uh, Donald Trump yeah. and, and she lost the election, then I... The Clintons were out of power, and I, I dumped my book out. And we went on a worldwide tour. We did four, five, six interviews a day, day after day, uh, trying to get as much exposure because when you're a whistleblower, that's what you have to do. Um, and then yeah, you have to keep the light uh, about up. four weeks Listen, after we're, I— we're running out of time. We're running out of time, Cody. I am going to have you back on. But I do want to say I think this Merrick Garland thing is very interesting, and your story is interesting because I feel like— we're ushering in, and, and it's just my paranoia, my reptilian brain talking, but I feel like we're starting, we're ushering in a new era of uh, domestic terrorism cases, uh, you know? I mean, it's, I don't know why, but I just have this bad feeling about it, you know? It uh, is. Yeah, your feeling's absolutely right, because that's what they're going to do, and, uh, well, oh gosh. I got so much more stuff I could talk about, but you know we'll, the bottom we'll, line we'll is I've already been hammered bad. And after we dumped this, this Oklahoma City book out and did all the interviews, about five weeks later, I got struck in, a, in another head-on collision. That was uh, December twenty-first, uh, twenty seventeen, and uh, I was nearly killed. I'm still. I've had one surgery. I'm. Go, I've got two more scheduled. The last three years, I've been uh, really bad shape. And I'm just going to keep going until they kill me or this stuff changes. Because Americans have to know that our country's being taken over by this dark, shadowy government. Um, they started with Kennedy and his brother Robert and Martin Luther King. And they've been this deep state stuff has been at this for decades now. And pretty soon we're going to lose our freedoms and they're going to microchip us in this new world order. We need to wake up to what they're doing. And uh, I'm just doing my little part, telling my story. It's mass corruption. Uh, they murdered. I have in that book. We have to leave it at that because um, you know we're our time is up. But but definitely I'll have you back. And thank you so much for having the courage to come forward and tell your story. Thank you so much, Cody. Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate. All right. Go forth and have-